0: I was, at a, I was at a wedding at the weekend and I was kind of, I was all geared up for at least one person to say, still doing the music, eh? And no one
1: do it? No, nobody. Then we did. should cancel the podcast then. I
0: know, it's just like, uh, you've robbed me of an anecdote. I think, um, yeah, if anything, more people are like, who the f*** are you?
1: <laughs> My family are like, oh, you still playing that bassoon? I'm like, are you kidding? <laughs>
0: Hello. And welcome to
1: Still Doing The Music, aye? A new podcast that will hopefully give you, the listener, an insight into parts unfamiliar.
0: There are plenty of podcasts that talk about the music and the process.
1: But we're going to talk around the music and shine a light in the bits that don't get discussed so often.
0: We're not going to bore you about spreadsheets and heavy lifting. Although there is so much of that. We're going to talk to objectively successful independent artists and find out how they cope with a constantly changing industry. How they cope with having to be an accountant. An influencer. And a manager amongst many other things on top of making music in one way or another. How they cope
1: with the constant devaluation of recorded work and the harsh realities of touring.
0: And how they juggle their other jobs and roles to literally survive as an artist today. Today's guest spent a significant portion of his childhood in California before the lure of North Lanarkshire in the 80s became too much to resist, returning to Scotland at the age of 12.
1: After suffering the indignity of being expelled from a band called Bubblegum, he comforted himself by forming a seminal Scottish pop group with his friends Alan and Stuart and his girlfriend Emma.
0: He's probably responsible for recording, mixing and or producing at least one album that you love, but will no doubt during today's conversation be self-deprecating to the point that you'll want to climb into your headphones and give him a big hug.
1: He's worked with Mogwai, Arab Strap, Camera Obscura, Deacon Blue, RM Hubbard, Calvin Harris, Franz Ferdinand, Sparrow in the Workshop, Belle and Sebastian and the list goes on.
0: Not satisfied with being a founding member of the Delgados, he and his bandmates set up legendary label, Chemical Underground, in 1995.
1: He's a fantastic drummer, Motherwell's premier donut connoisseur, the Chemical Janny and Dawn of Chem19 studio. Nominative determinism ain't got nothing on him. He's Paul Savage. So, Paul? Still still doing the music, music, eh?
2: Still trying, yeah. (laughs) Still trying to get by. Um, Yeah, but... We've got a busy, a busy wee time ahead because the band's reforming. And uh, we've known about that for probably two years since the pandemic started. We were just about to re- to announce it. So kind of had to bite our tongues, not tell anybody. It almost kind of became this kind of idea that, it, you know, almost like it wasn't going to happen because it just looked like this is just going to keep on going on. Maybe we should just forget it. But yeah, we, we've kind of announced dates now, so uh, that's it official. And uh, yeah, we're playing, playing some dates next year. So so that's taken up brain power. Not so much time. I mean, we don't get together to practice that often so far, uh, but that's going to ramp up, I'm sure. But yeah, that's taken up most of my thoughts at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it's been 17 years? Yeah, it's quite a while.
0: Yeah, um, and yeah, so that's it. The the Delgados are officially officially back.
2: We're back, yeah.
1: How are you feeling about going back out?
2: Very nervous. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, really nervous. It's quite exciting at the same time, but it's uh it's been so long and it's also I've not been drumming that often. I've been playing stuff in the studio and uh yeah, various projects over the years, but it's probably been like five years since my last gig and even that gig was five songs. Uh, so dipping my toe in the water, actually, this week with a with a gig with a, another project called Album Club, uh, and so that'll be the first time officially playing live. So it's good practice for for us, you know, or for me, to get in front of people. Absolutely. So Album
0: Club was um, how did how did that come about? Because that's quite a it's quite a nice a nice thing.
2: Yeah, it's been that's been amazing to be honest. That. I mean, I I love talking about music, I love listening to music, um, but I think when you're producing or when you're recording, you go through this period where the last thing you want to do is listen to music, because you've just done it for 10 hours. You know, people are always saying to me, could you have a listen to this, could you do this, what do you think of this? I'm like, I come home, I don't want to listen to anything, so... um, it became really quite hard to, to find that time to, to listen to new stuff or, or old stuff, just listen to anything. Um, but I've gradually got that back over the years. I've kind of, I kind of see it as a different thing. Like Maybe at the weekend I'll be able to take some time and listen to some stuff. But Album Club came about with a friend of mine called MJ, who used to be in Zoe Van Gogh, had this idea of doing a book club for records. So the idea is that you choose an album. Everyone goes away and listens to it for however however many weeks we we have like six weeks usually so you listen I listen year on time really
0: was so this as a a reaction to like the the covid nineteen lockdown or was it did it start before that It
2: started just before it oh started right. a year before it, so I think randomly m j and I have these freakouts where we go it's all over, our careers are finished. <laughs> what are we gonna do? So like he was he had one of these moments, I had one of these moments and we were saying, What are we gonna do with ourselves? Like, no one wants Because that's what it's like in the studio. You can go you can go a year with it being really busy or you can go six months where it's just random like few weeks here and there. And you do feel like, Oh no, this is this is it this is it gone. I'm surprised the industry is still surviving with a with a whole streaming income, but that's a whole other podcast I'm sure. But the the whole idea that the you know, you're we're constantly kinda of battling against um yeah, this nice history, especially when you did this that really nice introduction. It sounds like I've done a lot, but sometimes it really does feel like, oh well, that's it done. I I'll go and be a barista.
0: I mean I'm in a cold sweat here, like hearing that you thought that, you know, that's me done, that's my career over. So like um I'm a I'm an <sighs>
2: Yeah, but doesn't every mus- every musician feel that when yes. you drop out and when you've got like two months of nothing in the calendar and you think, how am I going to pay? How am I going to pay the rent? How am I gonna in going to keep exposure? Yeah, in all those. Kinds oh of things. yeah, indeed. exposure. <laughs> um, imagine turning that there's a bank somewhere that takes exposure, exposure and turns points, it into cash. Yeah, know. that would be brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> profile. Yeah. Um So yeah, we had one of these moments and he came up with this idea. Look, let's just. Let's just get together for fun. We'll do the book club, album club thing, like a book club. He brought people that we didn't know, basically. He had he works in theatre, so a few playwrights. Um Peter Gagan was involved, he's a political commentator. Um yeah, lots of different people from various walks of life that he knew, but they didn't necessarily all know each other. So Emma and I were invited along. And so we met a bunch of new people and we got on really well. We did it for about a year before lockdown. Then during lockdown, it really came into its own. I think it, the format of it is kind of chaired by MJ. So you know what it's like when you, when you when lockdown happened and then everyone invited you to a Zoom party and it was a ramy. It was mm-hmm. like an absolute mess, people talking over each other or awkward silences, so you didn't know what to do, so... Most people end up just getting absolutely steaming and staring at screens for two hours <laughs> and going, How do I get out of this? Right, how do I back away from this? The album club was completely different because it was it was kind of the way that MJ hosts it, you'll you'll go to people individually and say, What did you think of like I mean, we start with an introduction to the bands that's been chosen. So the first album was REM, the album was Green. And he just went round everybody on the table, saying, "Right, so what's your relationship with REM? Have you heard of them before? Did, are you a fan? Did you? What do you know of them?" So everyone got to say, "I've been a fan since you know whatever document or or I, I, I always hated them. You know, I only know them for everybody hurts. You mm-hmm. know." So you get a whole bunch of different people coming from different angles, and everyone gets a chance to to speak. So it works really well on Zoom, with with MJ, chairing it. And we loved it, you know, we'd do it every six weeks. And then it became kind of more frequent during lockdown Mm because schedules were easier, (laughs) you know. (laughs) It used to be real nightmares, like, what can you, you know, it takes six weeks or eight weeks to get everyone in the pub. So traditionally, we'd meet in the Lauriston. And it was quite difficult because you were all talking about music where there's music blasting and everyone's chatting around us. Mm. But we loved it. It was a great laugh and it was good to see everyone. So the thing in the Zoom. It kind of focused us and we could play the music, we could play a little bit of the, each track and talk a bit more. So it kind of grew from that. And also during lockdown, everyone was kind of, like certainly me and Emma and MJ, anybody involved in music and in theatre were completely, like there was nothing, nothing happening. Yeah. So uh-huh. he had this idea, he said, look, I've got some songs, does anybody want to add anything to them in the house? And I said, well, I, I, um, I can maybe add some stuff. But I'll, once everyone's given you stuff, I'll, I'll put some drums on it in the studio. I'll go out myself and I'll mix it. So MJ mixed a few songs. I mixed a, f- mixed a few songs, put some drums on some of them, bass and some guitar. And and then, you know, we just did it for fun. And um, it kind of grew from there. And it, 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 so we, before we knew it, we had an album. Mm-hmm. And MJ got in touch with last night from Glasgow, and they they really liked it, so they've agreed to put it out. And it's yeah, so that's how it's all come about from a a quite a completely natural kind of desire just to fill in some time, hang about with friends, do some positive at a time when we're all kind of get nothing to do. Yeah, that's great. I mean. You've given
0: me like a, a horrible flashback there to, to Zoom parties, and oh, it sounds like yeah. you had a much better experience. But you had a much <laughs> better time than
1: mine.
0: It's like I, I, kind of, you know, I, I suffer from a, a bit of social anxiety. But then, you know, when you're when you don't have an out, it's like people are like, "So you're gonna come to the Zoom party tonight?" And you're like, oh, I, "I can't." It's like, "Well, you're not allowed at your house, so why are you not coming?" It's like, well, because I'm going to spend the entire time looking at the wee square of me on the screen going, why do I look like such a prick? <laughs> <laughs> it,
2: was a, it was a horrible time. <laughs> I, I just really didn't enjoy a lot of the Zoom stuff. It was just the album club was the only exception. Mm-hmm. It was just, it was just, that n- sounds really great. nice. Yeah.
1: Totally. Uh,
0: me, me and my wife, uh, Are we, we you went. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I know, big reveal. Oh my god, what <laughs> uh, content. <laughs> I'll just get that um, dramatic organ sound put oh underneath, underneath that underneath once. It. Yeah. Um we had um we went to someone's Zoom birthday party and yeah. you know, it was uh, it was like nineties uh, chart dance themed and it was it was great. Um but there's a guy in one of the tenements across the road for us who stares and he'll just Like you know, if you're carrying your shopping up the road or something, he'll be there and he'll be staring at you. Or if you park your car near his, he'll be there staring at you. Right. So this man, this man, I think he's one floor above us and across the way. So this man, he was just staring at us, like trying to relax into dancing in front of a zoom camera for someone's birthday. Like, and it was like, oh, this is this is just this was difficult already, but now there's a man staring just staring
1: I can't get over the phrase me and my wife went to a Zoom (laughs) birthday we moved from the bedroom to the living room (laughs) it's so good
0: (laughs) you had to you had to make the most of it it's like shall we go to the kitchen today today? Uh I
1: know did you get dressed up from uh, the waist up, <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. I,
0: I had a, a tuxedo on the top half and a speedo on the bottom half. Mm-hmm. Do you know that's why the guy was staring? <laughs> should have realised that you can <laughs> see
2: right in. I uh, know now. Now that you mentioned it, yeah, that's probably why. Probably. You should have just danced, staring at him, just making, not removing eye contact, just right in his eyes. Just it, see, I did try that for a wee bit. Like
0: I would kind of look over and kind of stare at him and be a bit like tried to convey, just know a bit weird. You just staring at us, and then the more I stared at him, the more I was like, I like could convince myself that he was actually a murderer, because he's got that look about him. Right. He once came out with a punnet of eggs, and he just started to rattle them off the window of a, a van. Um, and I, I don't know what the story was, but he's done it more than once. So I think it's just like someone oh parks right, outside yeah. his his closed door. He's like, No, not having it. Wow. Sorry,
1: this, right. Shol- this is
2: quite. This is I And this is Shawlin's. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> South Central Glasgow. Ah, uh-huh. most people just leave a wee note, but you know, half a dozen eggs.
0: I didn't want to watch too closely, but it was very entertaining. and There wasn't much else on at the time.
1: Ah, good on him.
0: Yeah, I'm just I'm just worried that one day, like he'll I'll open the curtains and he'll be standing on the windowsill.
1: It's because he's got an excellent view.
0: No, no <laughs> you're no, welcome.
1: No, I think we should move on. Yeah, I think we should
0: <laughs> move on. Um, so the Album Club is having its live debut tonight. Mm-hmm. Tonight, ah, yes, sir. Um, at Warren Moore. So, will that th- is that the first live appearance of you behind a drum kit for five years? Five then? years, yeah. And you were out with Emma before that, was yeah.
2: It? I mean, it played with various things. Uh, Lord Cut Glass, which is Alan from the from Delgado's, and uh, Emma's solo stuff before she got younger and better models in, and then there was, <laughs> um. <laughs> Malcolm Middleton, uh, just after we split up, went out with Malcolm. Um, yeah, split so up with the dog. not yeah, your wife, no Emma. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Hot cod. just <laughs> went away with Malcolm. No, so yeah. what's all coming in? <laughs> Is it exciting to kind of like reengage with your primary primary instrument again?
2: Yeah, yeah. It's been it's been great. Lockdown has been kind of weird because like knowing that I was this was going to happen. I started I got I did things that I never did when I was actually in a band. So like I got a drum pad, some sticks and started practising the things that you should do as a drummer. Um I'm not sure it's made any difference but you know, I'm still reverting to the old bad habits but it's uh, I kinda suppose it focused me for a wee while. But I never I was never taught, so it was always a case of when you do these things you kinda go, Oh, I was kinda doing that anyway, but in my own way. Uh so I, I don't want to unpick it too much. It's uh so I I'm gonna try to keep myself occupied during that lockdown and I couldn't tell anybody why I would be doing it, but I just did it anyway. Um so it's been good. You know, can I get back back playing? Yeah. Drums are the best thing. Sorry. No yeah. They are <laughs> so, you know
1: they they are I'm fascinated by... Um, I think I'm a frustrated drummer. a frustrated drummer. Oh, that explains, think, yeah.
0: explains your mic technique with your finger stabbing.
1: Yeah, and how many rows I've had in <laughs> the last <laughs> two recordings of this.
0: Um, I, I, I wanted to be a drummer when I was a wee boy as well, but I lived on the top floor, uh, and that was just not happening, because I think you might have put my
2: mother over the edge if I was rattling away at a kit. I, I, it's
1: just, it's very, very cool. Yeah,
2: yeah, I do a lot. My, my boy wanted to learn. So I've taken him out to the studio a couple of times when I've had a kit out. And uh, he he thinks, yeah, great, because he watched Whiplash. He was obsessed uh, with Whiplash. So this whole jazz drum, he's, he's got a stupid jazz grip as well. <laughs> <You> know, <like laughs> he just decided he was going to start with a jazz grip. Like, mm-hmm. that's really tough, but OK, like fine, go for it. And then he said, right, could you bring a kit? Could you dr- bring a snare back in a Mm. And I was saying, no, you don't understand. snare's really loud. It's not, like, kind of loud. It's very loud. So surely it'll be fine. We'll put something on the floor. So just as a (laughs) test, I brought it back. And then Emma, I walked in with the snare drum and the stand and the sticks. Emma said, what the fuck are you doing? Like, (laughs) (laughs) that's insane. And um, I just tapped it, like, in the living room. Mm. I shouted up to him and said, like, Ben, come on down, and, and I tapped the snare. It was just so loud. He came down, OK, right, yeah, I get it, I get it. It's not happening in the house. Because we're in the tent, we're, we're neighbours on either side, so... Two cat, no cat-shaped, cat-shaped holes in your window. Yeah, exactly, they like. were gone, yeah. you know, like the babies on either side were screaming, you know. yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's it's not a ca- It's not an instrument you can, you can really practise.
0: But he was also, like... Um, Opening the door to you being able to shout at him like J.K. Simmons. Yeah. Well, that, you're you're the second drummer that we've had on this podcast in its infancy. So um, you're listening to keeping the beat. Oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: um, Five A's, in case you want to know. Five A's sticks. Ah, okay. Oh, good. okay. I thought you were telling me is, is what type high of results? stick.
1: Pro Mark. No.
2: Do you know what's the one with the wee American flag on it? Is that Pro Mark? Oh, I don't know. It's no, that will be a Firth.
1: Firth. big first.
2: first. Yeah. Yes. yeah Look at Listen, See, you don't you at
1: me between Martin Johnson, Audrey Tate, <laughs> every drummer <laughs> that I know, I feel like I should be better than I am. but
0: you're, You really are taking being part of the rhythm section seriously. Oh, God, yeah.
1: yeah. What's the point so if you're not you going to? I was learning a six-stroke roll. Yes. Did get there? we go.
2: yeah. Last
0: time I seen you were doing paradiddles in the van.
1: Mm-hmm. Speaking in tongues <laughs> <laughs> Okay, and you're back in the studio uh, Yes, <laughs> so uh,
0: behave yourself I know like a, lot of, a lot of folk will have heard your work Like recorded work who are, who are listening to this That's me being arrogant and assuming that we'll have an audience You'll bring an audience to this podcast right, A okay.
2: um, bunch of ham-fisted drummers
1: and my dad
2: (laughs) 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 hello mr Mr. printer
0: yes sorry for sweatily hugging you at the glad cafe um (laughs) you're taking you're taking a well-earned break from being the king of uh, chem 19 to go back to to doing some live stuff but i mean i think it would be remiss of us not to have a chat about like the the decades of work that you've done Behind the mixing yeah. desk and production work as well. Sure, you're not always on production duties, but when you when you are producing a record, how do you how do you cope with the pressure of an artist essentially gonna hand handing you their, their baby? That's a really bad metaphor. How do you cope with an <laughs> artist handing a baby and saying, "Educate this or <laughs> yeah. make it look different, mold it, <laughs> mold it, there change we go. my
2: baby"? Um, <laughs> yeah, that's no freaking merit. I'd rather not use that in my. In my mind I think that would be it's an right. awful thing. But um I th- i th- I quite I prefer production work because it usually means if someone asks me to produce something, they're on board with the idea that I can suggest things. Whereas if it's just, you know, somebody just wanting to record um or just wanting me to mix, there's probably they're not quite as invested as, as the f- somebody with the full production thing. So, um, but every every situation is different, you know. Every band's different. Some people need a lot of reassurance, and some people need to be um, maybe just a, a totally different tact. They just need, um, I don't know, just guidance in other ways. It can every every single session is is very different. But I do think, like, when someone says, "Let's," I'll let you produce it then you can get a little bit more involved in, in things without having to kind of prove yourself. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've got this is like going back to when I first started as an engineer. I was the wee guy in the room most of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were usually wee guys and like they were usually older, the people I was working with. And I had to kind of prove myself. And a lot of times it was like, shut up wee man, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and then I would gradually sort of Maybe win them over or or eventually just you know as years went on with more experienced people would would give me that uh, time of day you know or give me the, the opportunity but it's kind of got to that stage now where yeah it's it's been 20 years kind of getting to the point where the the history can can maybe convince people before they've even met me which is nice, mm-hmm. but then the pressures on to to deliver, but you know it's still it's it, that used to be a problem when I was younger. just trying to convince people that look, I know what I'm doing, and you can listen to me, but you've got to just do that quietly and just with, by demonstration, just by by winning them over by getting good sounds or mm-hmm. suggesting you know ideas, techniques. Yeah we had, I mean we had to cut
0: down your CV for the for the intro because otherwise the intro would have been like 5 minutes so I mean you've got a really incredible back catalogue of work that speaks for itself now so I guess
2: maybe that's a bit just grinding know. it out <laughs> <Just> grinding <laughs> it out 20 years grinding it out in the indie scene
0: you've yeah. just been working on Paolo Nutini's new record and yeah. that's a very high profile thing given yeah. how long it's been since he
2: last are recorded are going something
1: crazy for it at the moment
2: yeah, it's been six years, I think, since yeah. his last one. So he kind of got a call out the blue just before Christmas, and uh, asking if I would be interested in mixing a song. So, of course, I said, "Yeah, that would be that'd be great." Um, and then I had a chat with him. I think it was New Year's Eve. Just chatted just before we went out or had a drink, and it was great. Just talking. spent about an hour and a half talking to him about music and it was just great, we really kind of clicked. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, he said that he kind of heard some of the stuff I'd done before, but he'd the one of the main things he'd, he'd mentioned, and why him and Danny, the producer of his record, had, had asked me to get involved was because of the last Arab Strap album that I just did in 2019. Mm-hmm. So that was great to know. that, that It was some, something so recent, plus the fact that Paulo was listening to. I mean, he's a big fan of Arab Strap. I didn't know that, but um yeah, he he loves the new the new records. So that was uh that was good to know. Then he gave me the track, which the first track I did was was lose it. It's the one that's just been kind of previewed for the album. Mm. One of two tracks that were previewed for the album. And uh, as soon as I heard it, I thought, all oh, right, okay, I understand. I get it. This is the weird indie track. Maybe, maybe he wants me to do some weird indie stuff on it. I mean, I loved it; it was right up my street. It was very much like Noi and can, and um, a bit of spoken word. Um, it was just great. It was, you know, perfect for me. But I wondered if if, it, if that was just going to be it. But then he kept on giving me more tracks and more varied styles and. So it wasn't just the the kind of the outlier in the record, and the record's very eclectic. You know, he's he's got an amazing knowledge of music, and we can just sit and chat about all sorts of stuff and play each other music and get excited about different styles. And that shows on his record. It's it's, it's kind of it's great. It's really quite experimental in that sense. Mm-hmm. So it's been it's been great working with him, and that's coming out next month, I think.
1: Yeah, coming in yeah. soon. Yeah, as well.
0: Mm-hmm. So he he kind of he strikes me as someone who's very particular about how things are recorded and someone who's keen to kind of shy away from the conveniences of modern uh, music production, like you know, actually someone who gets musicians in to play certain parts. Oh yeah. Than yeah. And do you think that part of his reason for wanting to work with you is because there is a there's kind of a, a Paul Savage sound in the. Like a lot of your recordings, you almost feel like you're sitting in a room with the- mu- the musicians, like the individual parts are so clear,
2: yeah, part of my I mean my favorite a lot of my favorite records sound like you're in the room with the band, like the breeders' pod, for instance mm-hmm. for me is like is a perfect record of a band. It sounds like if you've been in a rehearsal room, which we all have been that's a that's a really good sort of example of. A, a really well recorded, almost like a band practice. Yeah. I, d- I just like the idea that you know people can make these incredible noises, and and a lot of people tend to use these really fake things to 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 detract from it. You know, things that correct pitch, things that correct time, things that make them sound silly and funny. Spaces and I love effects. I love things like that, but I don't like overdoing it. I like to hear the human element. Mm-hmm. Because the human element ultimately is more interesting than a plug-in. Yeah, I feel, I
0: feel, sorry, I feel like working with you is kind of punctured uh, some of my anxiety about perfection. Like, as in, you, you're a real proponent of the weirdness or the the clunk or the the humanizing effect of playing something a wee bit awry, almost sometimes.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, because we were discussing this because you're in a fairly unique position that you've had like significant success both sides of the desk. So, I guess, how do the senses of achievement compare? I mean, playing live will give you immediate feedback, but is that sort of thing comparable to engineering a take and realizing that the artist has entered like a state of flow and that they're hitting on something amazing?
2: They're both. That's, I think they're both quite different. Uh, it's been a while since we played live, so it's kind of. Hopefully, I'll be feeling some kind of um, enjoyment from that later. But you know, I think the. I think that it's a culmination of things. So when you're in the studio and you, you hit upon a, a, a good period of time where ideas are flowing and and someone's just comfortable, I think it's like getting artists comfortable is really the key because then they can perform without without that kind of sense that they're they're kind of thinking about their dinner or they're thinking about the microphone's not right in the right position and somebody's looking at them through the window and distracting them if it's just a comfortable space and they can just be and do what they should be doing that's a real that's the goal and then you can get some amazing stuff out of that and all these little nudges and tweaks and changes and ideas that people exchange in the studio. Sometimes you get this these moments where it just a lot of great ideas follow from everybody in the room just very, very quickly and you end up looking back at it like a day later and go, That was amazing. That was a real moment. You know, a lot of people were on the top of their game at that point. So it can be like I like to include everyone. So like if you're if you're certainly if you're doing basic stuff with drums, bass, guitars keys, whatever t- everyone in the in the room and people start sort of playing off each other. That's that's not something that you can do sitting at a laptop mm. with one person's vision. It's a it's a group effort. And you just need to create that environment in a room where you can go, well the bass player's gonna push on that note or pushed accidentally but could the could the drummer accent that and then somebody else goes, Oh actually that my guitar could play an offbeat after that and that would work and suddenly it's like to construct that in your head you need to be some kind of genius it has to be lots of different people with different jobs going okay well now we'll all fit just the way bands do naturally Um, so yeah it's something you notice after Um, it's something you notice maybe even once it's all done once it's all mixed once it's all out, sometimes is when I, when I first hear something for the, like truly for the first time. Yeah. Like, hear it without that, be maybe that pressure of, I'm still mixing it, I'm still concentrating on it. Mm-hmm. I really like to get to that moment where I, I hear something and it's maybe enough time's gone by that I forget that I did it. I just know that I like it. Like, mm-hmm. if I hear it on the radio. There's been a couple of times I've caught myself going, oh, "I love this song. It sounds great. Who did it, or who is it?" And then I realise, "Oh, it's this one. You know, it's one I was involved in in some way." Mm-hmm. Um, and then I check myself and say, "Don't be an arrogant prick." <laughs> <So> <laughs> <laughs> <But> yeah.
0: Um,
1: <laughs> I quite like the idea of you driving in the car and being like. This is great. Who did this? They must like get sharp. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, you
0: have to. I like how you immediately slash your your enjoyment. Just oh. like, you know, stop enjoying yourself. I am
1: so good at this.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I should just do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was me. Um, so, uh, uh, you're a very you're a very calming presence in the studio. Um, like when uh, when we were doing the last Broken Chanter record. I lost my voice during the the window of time that we had to record, and there was mm-hmm. another session in like at the end of the four weeks that we had to record and mix it. And you know, were you catastrophized? Well, yeah. I, I was I was ripping up a, a handkerchief into, catastroph- into, into small, 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 small pieces. <laughs> like I'm a very positive person.
1: Catastrophe hits.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, um, but you know, you managed to very quickly kind of rearrange everything uh, that we had to do to accommodate me getting a post-nasal drip. Um, so like I lost my voice. Uh, Graeme Smiley, uh, who was playing bass and keys, also came down with it as well. So there was a, a, a pinch of COVID anxiety at the time as well because, you yeah. know, that was back when COVID was a lot... It was coming and going. Well, so, yeah. yeah. And I'm not sure we'd even had one jag then, had we? Anyway, sorry, that's me. But, like, it was still kind of, like, really bad... Uh, it's still bad, but I mean it's still it was back when it's kinda a real cold sweat was like is this COVID. Um, but you know, you managed to kind of sort everything so that we were kept to uh kept to time, just to a different schedule. Um what's what's the biggest disaster that's happened in the studio when you've been working on a record? And like how did you kinda keep a cool head when everything seemed to be going absolutely, you know
2: bosom skyward? I can't think of disasters. I mean, I've made some pretty big mistakes.
0: Um, we don't. Uh, sorry, I didn't mean for you to self-flagellate. It's more like kind of just. It doesn't necessarily have to be <laughs> you, to be you, my fault. You, you uh, cost them.
2: <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> that's not the like ones it. I can think of. I mean, it, on the first Mogwai album, we this is way back when we were we were on tape. Um, I was probably a year or two into like me doing this and um, we didn't have much money so we only had a few reels and I uh, don't know if you know but reels I think it these particular reels that the machine that we had we had like 16 minutes on each one and the drummer from Kaniki Pete came along one day uh, it's Lauren Verne's brother mm-hmm. Pete, um, he played drums alongside uh, Martin for a version of um your Satan. And uh, it was great, but it kinda at some point in the in the end the, between the two kits and all the guitars that were all done live, it kind of moved a bit and it kinda like went out of time a touch. But it, it did sound really good. But we took another reel And we did another version, maybe a few days later. Pete wasn't there, and it was just Martin, and that's the one that's on the record. Mm -hmm. And I think it was about near the end of the recording, the band said, "Can we hear that? Can we hear that version repeat on it? You know, let's let's maybe we could do something with that, or maybe we could do an alternative mix of it." And I had to admit, uh, sorry, I only have three reels. It was a six. T- it was like a f- fourteen-minute song. <laughs> um, I had to scrub over that whole take, you know. So they were raging, and the, they hadn't let me forget about that for years. <laughs> you know. So that was that was gone. So you know, you can't back up tape. We were we were a poor, struggling studio. <laughs> <laughs> that's.
0: I mean, that's
2: completely understandable.
0: Glad you think so. Yeah, but do you just get like emails going? Don't delete this now. Whenever you work
2: together, don't yeah, delete this. yeah, don't delete don't, this. don't scrub this. Remember, <laughs> yeah, this is our app. Oh, don't no, kill it. <laughs> yeah, I still feel bad about that. I hoard everything now, but then again, it's, it's only hard drive space. Mm-hmm. Do you notice,
0: like, do you miss working with tapes? I mean, I mean, I know you can put things through tapes in the studio for saturation and warmth mm-hmm. and that sort of stuff, but do you feel like you really miss something about the actual analog uh, yeah. recording process?
2: Uh, I miss not. It's not just the sound. The sound is a is a factor. Mm. The biggest factor is the 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 workflow. So you don't get to procrastinate over things. Mm-hmm. You've just got to say, was that good enough? Are you going to get this better? Mm -hmm. I've only got five minutes left. Are you going to get it better? (laughs) Because I'm going to scrub it over. I'm scrubbing over the one that you just did. Mm -hmm. So you've got these kind of decisions to make. Forces you, forces people to play. If the band can play, it's amazing. So everyone gets this kind of heightened sense of right. Oh, right. So I don't. I can't do five takes and take the best first one and the best first, you know, first four and splice Mm -hmm. them. You know, that's not going to happen. It's certainly not. I'm not confident enough of the razor blade to to do that stuff. Mm-hmm. So it is basically like just just record it. If it works, then great. Uh,
0: yeah. I, I think a lot of people, well, quite a few people listening to this, wouldn't actually realise that you're literally meaning that to edit uh, tape when you know you're using tape to record an album. You, you actually literally use a razor blade to yeah. to, to edit
2: it. Yeah. So um, I've edited some bits and pieces before, but some engineers were quite... I suppose I, 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 I came into the industry at quite a an, a unique time. I saw the end of tape. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the first thing I used. There wasn't really many options about... Digital recording had just started, but it was only like complete high-end studios that had it. So we had a pretty basic tape recorder, small desk, and then it was like that I mean, the label started in 95. We were still using tape on the Great Eastern, for instance, in 2000. But by the time Hate came out, we were using a combination of tape and tape and digital on Pro Tools. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was 2002. So that was around about the time when things flipped over, mm-hmm. between 1999 and 2001 when we were recording. So... Um, I was lucky enough to catch that pre-digital era mm. and then post-digital era. And it's been, uh, you know, I feel quite lucky that I was kind of sat right at that perfect moment to see the benefits of both. Tape could be a pain, you know. It has to be set up right. Um, so it was, yeah, it was just, it, it was fiddly and mm. it, you know, the editing capabilities of, of Pro Tools and other, other doors that are available, but, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> Logic or whatever. Um, th- that's amazing. That's really good. But um, people are getting too lazy with it. So I've seen the benefit of having a band in a room mm-hmm. recording with them all trying to get it right mm-hmm. rather than, oh, could you... I, pl- I played that bit for two bars correctly. Could you just copy and paste it all? mm mm-hmm. So I've had people come in with that attitude, so sort of, you know younger musicians, younger than me certainly. So saying, oh, could you just take it from that verse? And saying, yeah, we could, but <laughs> do, <laughs> do it again. I, you. Do it again. <laughs> do it right. And at yeah. least the fact that something slightly different is going to happen when you do verse two mm-hmm. rather than copy verse one into it. You're going to play it slightly different, especially if you play from the start of the song and then you kind of lean into it a bit more in verse two, or you do something slightly different. People's brains when they're listening, you might not, it may not be the front of your, your, yeah, your thoughts that this is copied. But In the back, I'm sure people kind of, almost like let go of the engagement of the song if it's just like I'm just hearing this again. Mm-hmm. I'm hearing that drum beat again. Mm-hmm. I'm hearing this exact plane once more. It's just endless, and I just think people just go, "Oh yeah," they switch off. Yeah. I think having something slightly different, uh, the mistakes, the human element is is really important. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's interesting that a lot of the the stuff that people are referencing now with '80s stuff, they'll tell me like, you know, I want a really modern sound. Here's an '808 kick. <laughs> you know, from 1982 like, great. So dry yeah. <laughs> It's really annoying So, yeah So like, a lot of drums that I've, I'm actually recording are newer than the drum machines that people want to sound modern on mm-hmm. The A lot of that stuff the, the classic sort of Depeche Mode in the 80s era all those kind of fantastic electro bands they were on tape and I know firsthand what tape is like, it does not stay still. Mm-hmm. It moves. And I think there's something in that that a lot of that stuff was not rock solid. Like a drum machine, even though it was a drum machine, mm-hmm. the wound flutter of the tape would just make it sort of move slightly. I think that had a lot to do with giving a human element to a lot of that a lot of those recordings. Yeah. And now that's gone. I think that people were using the technology too literally and it's becoming like music it's just becoming gridded and too boring mm-hmm. and you can correct everything you know every little breath can be edited out like you're probably going to have to do with me like take all the it'll just be my whistling nose and uh, I need to try this <laughs> I can't whistle you know it's, it's a real flaw
0: If you're enjoying this podcast Adrian. or would like to incentivize us to get better at it Adrian. Head over to our Patreon.
1: Patreon.
0: Patreon. Patreon. Patreon.
1: Patreon. 100% Patreon.
0: Patreon page. Become a patron of the podcast. Head to patreon.com forward slash s-d-t-m-a.
1: That is patreon.com forward slash s-d-t-m-a. And what does that stand for, David?
0: Still doing the music, (sighs) eh? Wow. Seamless stuff. So... If you can chuck us a few quid a month, that'll really help us to produce and make this podcast. But if you can't afford that, you can listen for free. We are living in a hellish dystopia after all.
1: Now that the Delgados have reformed, Mm -hmm. and everyone knows it, which is very exciting, uh, how are you mentally preparing yourself for being back in the road? Because it'll been quite a while since you've been out with... With Emma, yeah. certainly.
2: Yeah, it's been it's been ages. Um, I think the all we can do is seek advice from a a, a few people that that we know that are going to be with us. You know, that do it a lot more. I mean, Emma's been gigging loads, so I think if ways she's okay. Me and Stuart are probably the the least kind of um, up to speed with gigging. And playing um so and and Alan's Harlan has played a little bit over the years so um we're all in different stages and we're all just trying to get get our feet again just playing I think if we can just get it under our skin a wee bit you know just the way that as a musician you both know as musicians you both know like what that feeling is like when you when you know something so well that you don't have to think of it. So when you do get that moment, maybe if you have a, ba- a bit of a blank, your muscles will kick in and just play the part mm-hmm. because yeah. it's already there. Kind of just getting to that is, is, um, is maybe the, the kind of goal. But the weird thing I have noticed is that it's already there. It's strange. That we must have played these songs for for so long. We did a lot of touring back in the day, so there was a an example that we were we tried a song off the Great Eastern called I Today. We tried that last week, and I hadn't listened to it for years. Never mind played it. Mm. So Alan said, I, I've kind of got it. He'd been listening to it, and Stuart said, oh, I think I could I could play it. I said, I have no idea how it goes. I can't remember it I can remember I know I know the song, but you know i don't I didn't remember it to play it, but we just said let's just go for it and just just play and see where we are and I, I've said this to a few people like that are drummers they they kind of agree it's like we started the song and it, it was as if I could watch my hands doing something that I had no control over it was just all little cues from maybe a vocal or a guitar making my hand go Oh, this! you go here, you're on the tom for this one and you do this and then you crash and then you, it's a kick drum on that beat and because there was no pressure, we weren't playing it in front of anybody, it was just us
1: Mm
2: -hmm. it was just really fascinating watching another part of my memory that I had no tangible sort of conscious knowledge of, taking over what I was doing, so that uh, you know it's, it is there. It's really important to get that, I think. But the strange thing is, after 17 years, it's actually still there. I never thought that would happen. Bad. Yeah, um, when when
0: I was when I've been out like say touring a record or like when you're playing songs from a previous record and stuff, yeah. I, d- I used to I used to have a couple of drinks before I'd go on stage because if I had if I had no drinks. To be fine. But if I had one pint or like one bottle of beer then I'd find I would think about things and the muscle memory would not be there because I would be too aware of what I was mm-hmm. trying to do and then I would like sometimes stumble over words or be like if you think about what chord's next then you're doomed. Yeah. yeah. If
2: you think about walking you'll fall over. Yeah. You know if you think about it really hard like exactly everything that you do it'll be stilted it'll be weird mm-hmm. and I think you got to get to the point where you don't look at it. Just let it, let it happen. There's another part of your brain that you should be hoping to engage, and uh, that is uh, that's certainly happening in a in a weird way. So the preparation is uh, is more just like getting repeated playing, getting getting used to it, so that
1: stamina, st- isn't it? Yeah, and it's
2: stamina as yeah. well. I mean, I haven't played drums for a long time, mm-hmm. so yeah.
0: So. When you're in the studio, do you get to a point where you're like, "Okay, we need to do like a dress rehearsal," so you then will pour the beer on your snare and your floor tom, yeah. then, or do you save that for like the actual? <laughs> save show. that for later. Okay. Yeah.
2: Get the bandages on knuckles, you know, the knuckles and the blood off the, the sticks. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, one of the hardest things, you know, after uh, after the pandemic was, you know, being m- mobile enough and uh, free of thought enough to be able to put your foot up in the the drum riser in the way- or the or the, oh yeah, in the wedge, yeah 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 to you know you'll know when you're slapping away at a solo on the bass that
1: I think it's illegal to play <laughs> slap bass slap or bass. certainly mm-hmm. know how to induce to do it I think that's the issue and yeah, certainly in
0: central Scotland has uh-huh. been I just illegal. when when we're like um, sound checking and you start doing slap bass I try and look at you like as sad as possible just like I think I managed to cry one sound check just so you'll stop you'll
1: it. never look at me with as much hate as I feel about myself when I do it so
0: (laughs) (laughs) well (laughs) speaking of that there's been uh, so you know we live in a a a modern uh, dystopia of constant photos and stuff and there's been a few (laughs) photos that people have posted on twitter and stuff of us being on tour um, where you're looking at me like
1: oh my god like you've like killed my kitten or something yeah, and you've snapped uh, yeah. its neck
0: like we've been in a marriage for 40 years and I've just undermined you the entire time but tonight's the night that you're going to slip the knife between my ribs
1: one photo in particular I was act- I'll sh- i show you after this I was actually shocked at how like I'm looking at you with absolute disgust and outrage yeah. I didn't even though my face could contort in such um, a way but only for David
2: it was as if you had picked up the bass and played some slap Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, we were
1: doing a cover of Girls on Film but
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> By the way, what a banging bass line anyway. Yeah. So uh, yeah.
2: We should have a chat about slap bass and acceptable slap bass in songs. It's a very I mean the blue window. Nile. The blue Nile. We've well, I mean, got yeah. to discuss that.
1: Okay. I'm in, I'm up for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah
0: that, that falls in the the, the cat it's not like super kinda of ostentatious slap bass. You don't feel yeah. like the person playing it has uh, culturally insensitive dreadlocks.
1: I'm just get The next album's full of slap yeah. interludes, all sorts. <laughs>
2: See, like Seinfeld. Aye, totally.
1: Oh, yeah. uh-huh. I mean, uh, no, don't. That's yeah, great between songs, you got to <laughs> do it. Pockets, and I mean like tiny pockets of slap in Jagged Little Pill that I think make tracks for me. Oh, no, yeah. no, um, there's one specific. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or but there's a couple <laughs> of <laughs> just, like, uh, fleas, like, tugging the strings or smacking them.
2: Yeah, right. It okay. I think there's a limit, isn't there, the threshold? Like, maybe, like, an old sampler that could only sample for, like, 1.6 seconds. There it is. <laughs> like it's and the same it. idea. Like, you're, <laughs> you're only allowed that much of slap.
1: That's it. And there we go. We've wrapped up slap. That's yep. a done. Technique done. One point mm-hmm. six seconds.
2: One point six that's seconds it. of slap. It's your
1: limit. Speaking of quick fire things, uh, worst motorway service experience. Go.
2: Worst <laughs> one. <laughs> it would be You know that horrible one that's in is it Fortin? Lancaster Fortin? Mm. the one with the kind of is that the spaceship? spaceship oh towers. my god! That's its, its second it appearance on this podcast already. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's rubbish. Like it's rubbish. It, l- it promises so much from when you're driving, you see it, and you think, "Oh, let's go to the spaceship." That looks amazing, and then you get to it, and it's like two identical, horrible, grimy, uncared for seventies monstrosities mm. with m mm. and Burger King. That's the Burger King Bridge as well, isn't it? Burger King Bridge, Yes. Yeah. Such a disappointing array of shops and just, yeah. But it is, it's because it looks so good. Like, it's a brutalist 70s monstrosity yeah. in, the spa- in, a, as a, in the form of a spaceship, but mm-hmm. you get into that spaceship and it's shit. Yeah, shit,
0: space It ship. does
1: promise a lot. And then yeah.
0: But at least when you're eating your Burger King above the carriageway, you can fantasise about just, you know, being sucked under the wheels of an 18-wheeler.
1: Oh, dear, that's very, very dark. There's another services 22 miles down the road that would be better. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Look,
0: me. we've talked about that services, and it's the one that's... Uh, <laughs> I know, I it's know. It's the one at the end of your journey when you're heading home, and it's... Uh,
1: oh, yeah. when you think you're further than you are, mm. and then...
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: What one's that? That's the Lancaster, oh, one. The Lancaster uh, one. Oh, the Lancaster one, yeah.
1: Can we quickly touch on TB? Because everybody's yeah. got such a thing for TB.
0: Yeah. Do you share it? I, you like TB. I like TB because I prefer... you like
1: a, pissing I, money into the wind. Well,
0: I prefer, a mar- <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> a, I prefer... Yeah, that's I prefer a,
2: a, a mug Suspenser services, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I like the look of the TB. I like the, like, walking around and looking at all the little jars and mm-hmm. sourdough bread and... Crackers, like with <laughs> I feel
1: chili like it
2: flakes.
0: should have a petting zoo at the side of it. Yeah, it I, I think it probably it. did at one point. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's goats that you can touch. Yeah, <laughs> um, but like, yeah, okay. So I know you're not a huge fan, and I like it because it's it's at least a wee bit less kind of um, I don't know. Like most motorway services in the UK, feel like you are in a shite remake of Blade Runner mm-hmm. um, because it's just this grim like day glow. Gaudy, yeah, vibe, but it's not quite, you know, three D. Three D. Is billboards. Blade
1: Runner the three-breasted woman?
0: No, Cause that's Total Recall. because oh,
1: there's a lot of that in the Lancaster one.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, okay, no, fair enough. Maybe like the Mars colony and Total mm. Recall is a better analogy. <laughs> it's it is very much like that. But like the reason I like the Marks and Spencer's ones is because you can get vegetables, <laughs> so it's like you don't feel like you're eating your way to an earlier grave
1: well yeah I mean you are at every services TB's got a good shower
2: you've used a shower in the service. I've
1: actually used a shower a couple of times in services
2: we're going to have to talk about the shower thing because uh, the band we, we traditionally toured in a tour bus not because we were like oh well we want tour buses but there's 10 people on stage there's 4 or 5 crew mm-hmm. so we need mm-hmm. a 16 berth it makes sense financially because yeah. we hotel rooms for everyone be a fortune yeah. So we were minging though, you know, because <laughs> we were like 16 <laughs> on a bus and, you know, you'd be away for three weeks and go, right, and then we'd have to just go into swimming pools and we'd sometimes just say, like, to the tour manager eventually, like, we are too stinking, we need to get a day room somewhere. It looks like we're going to go down that route again. So we need to talk about services, swimming pools venues. and venues some venues might have it yeah well the bars were back home but like you know Shepherd's Bush yeah you know. good shower okay great yeah sorted yeah, yeah. we can go through the Brighton where I'm sure the Concord doesn't have showers
1: eh uh, I can confirm it does oh, two it does. showers in the Concord yeah 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 I was there a month and a bit ago yes
2: brilliant okay Not Leadmill
1: one nice one not nice
2: okay
1: Um, I don't know about that I also took out a gym membership to use... Shower- See, I'm a two-shower-a-day type of person, so I find the touring right. thing... Well, you're the
2: ideal person to talk to, because...
1: Let's f- talk about showers, yeah. but <laughs> it's a different podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to Still doing one. the shower now. <laughs> shower's on
2: tour. <laughs> uh, Manchester Academy?
1: Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. The academies are great. Clean Amazing. enough to take a wee pair of flip-flops, though. Right. More trench foot. Very um, good, um, hazard. Oh, totally. but
2: That's a good shout, then. Tell mm-hmm. everyone we're sorted.
1: Yeah. Done. I'll hose everyone out the back like Filthy Raccoons. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that would be fine, but you would enjoy it too much. <laughs> Probably. I think Filthy Raccoons is a band name. Is really good. <laughs> yeah, with the, f- with the front person Baruka Hazard.
1: <laughs> oh dear. Um, so sorry,
0: we 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 totally interrupted you. Was there a particular bad time at the the Shite UFO Services, or is it just the?
2: disappointment I think it's just general you know, every room. time because it, it kind of still lures me in like when I see it and I think oh yeah that concrete and then, I go, and then before I know it <laughs> I'm in there I go yeah this is shit
1: you're going to be in there later this year but like, maybe it's changed I
2: know I, know. I think we we'll go to T-Bay and then get fleece. Uh-huh. it's either that and get some you know steampunk bespoke sausage roll that yep. doesn't taste very nice
1: have any of the Delgados ever met Pedro Delgado Nope.
0: Great. Okay. So nope. <laughs> 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 moving on. <laughs> um,
1: so <laughs> I'm getting into the swing of this podcast. Yeah, stuff. It. Next. Yeah. <laughs> my, my own podcast would last 30 minutes <laughs> like 18 questions. Nope. Great. Okay. Next. Um,
2: so um, do you do A, B, C, D? <laughs> so yes, sometimes never. Always great, yeah.
1: yeah. Like the smiley face yeah. system in TV, where like how clean was your toilet trip? Yeah, from red face to very happy green. That's my,
0: my podcast experience. Uh-huh. While we're on the Delgados and Pedro himself, um, I know uh, I can't believe that he's never reached out over the years.
2: Yeah, he must have heard us and thought, that's shit. I'm not, I'm <laughs> not gonna, I'm not gonna go there. <laughs> wow, I'm, I'm sure he's got great taste. We do well in Spain though. Yeah. Yeah, I mean Spain Spain's always been good for us.
0: Do you think at first they thought you were like a family band like the Osmonds?
2: Yeah, I think so. <laughs>
0: and so, I know. You're Scottish. They're so white. <laughs> you just get gradually more red as the tour went on. Yeah. <laughs> um The Great Eastern um is is a wonderful record. Uh and you've mentioned it already, but you were reportedly one judge's vote away from winning the Mercury Prize in 2000. Like that must be a total head fryer. How do you? Yeah. How do you cope? Well,
2: how did you cope with coming so close to something that mainstream and massive? It was disappointing. I wouldn't say. I mean, we were down there, and it was. I almost wish it's the 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 person who was on the panel that told us you know, about it said, Oh, you were you were actually in the lead before Badly Drawn Boy played live. And then he played live and 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 kinda of turned a few people. And uh, so that was it, yeah. Oh, so I'd it was tough. I'd
1: wish they hadn't even said anything.
2: Yeah, I know that's that's kinda of how we felt, like oh. I wish we were last, you know, like or we didn't know. But mm-hmm. yeah, it was uh, it was hard to take, but then again the, the I'm not sure if we could have coped with the whole idea of winning it, the mm-hmm. expectation and that. It does seem to be a a bit of a tough thing to, to get through winning You'd have the trappings of all the attention and all the you know, the all the rest of it all the rest of the stuff that comes with these things. But mm-hmm. the pressure on the next record and you know, that kind of thing. Who knows? I mean it happened and uh Hard to say if we would have preferred the outcome the other way. Mm-hmm. You know, it's <laughs> a sliding doors musical moment, <laughs> really, isn't it? But uh, yeah, you should have
0: got um, like Emma to, to rattle our guitar off. Badly drawn boys kneecaps. That well, that's kind of the thing, thing. we yeah. weren't
2: allowed to play live, which was something that we wanted to that's do. Weird, because we had done later, and because they had the footage of us playing oh. later, they were just playing live footage. All oh, right. And then there were some bands that we didn't have that footage that we got to play. Who
1: else was in that year?
2: Coldplay. Coldplay, yeah. <laughs> <First> <laughs> Ladies and
1: gentlemen, Coldplay!
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> You've gone Jules Holland. I've gone Jules you know? yeah. oh, b- 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 <laughs> So, I, I can't remember that Jules Holland's performance, um, but I need to ask you, did did you have to have him playing Boogie Boogie Piano over one of your songs?
2: No, unfortunately oh, he didn't wonderful. play. But oh, I did then. play with... Um, I mean, I'm not a Clash fan, but I, I get a lot of mileage out of this story. Because at the start of the Jules Holland thing, I don't know if he still does it, that jam, that horrible jam yes. thing. Yeah. I used to hate, I used to, that was my biggest fear, going into to play it. Not like whether we'd play well, but more like, oh my God, do we have to do this horrible jam where everyone plays? But luckily the jam was, um, I fought the law, played by Joe Strummer and his band. The you know the classic, yeah, clash mm. cover of uh, so I was like, Yeah, play along with this floor tom, like toe dumb, dumb floor tom snare sort of thing. Um I don't know if any of that is ever recorded and played back through the mix when you when it pans round, but mm-hmm. just did that. So okay. Any clash fans that come into the studio and go, Oh yeah. Played with your Summer once. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Got a lot of mileage out of that one. I think I seen him on that tour
0: when I was just a just a just a boy I was at the just at the bar to see Joe Strummer and the Mescaleros in like 1999 that was that yeah. yeah it was a very yeah I had a spray painted spray painted shirt and stuff and I was a very very plucky teenager Um I wish I could see a picture of it now so I could set fire to it <laughs> I think
1: you should find see one it and post it. it after
0: uh, there's definitely not any pictures this goes out no
1: Tell us If you've had a massive musical high, or a joyous musical bubble, as David likes to call it, uh, that has been immediately punctured by probably day-to-day life.
2: Oh, right, yeah. Well, that's most tours, isn't it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was great. Now probably the Mercury. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the Mercury was a big burst bubble, a big flat bubble. Uh, I suppose... Like I said, probably most tours are, yeah. are, are really big highs and then coming back to to normal life um, is always really tough, especially if you've been, you know, we'd be in New York or something. You know, I always loved the idea of, like, playing. I would still get a, a little buzz out of the idea that you're in a different country and people come and see you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just thought that was just incredible. Like, we're in New York and there's... It's a sold-out show at the Bowery or something like that, and you think this is this doesn't get much better. Yeah. And then you go back home to rainy Glasgow and nappies and stuff. At the time, Her son was mm-hmm. two years old, so like that uh, was kind of like that was a, a real contrast. And um, you go away for six weeks or something, and it's like it's it's such a big rush every night. Then you come back, come back. and you just, you're just you back to normal life and it's quite a quite a different thing. I mean, uh, we'd never had anywhere near the kind of successes that some people had. You still get this idea that it's a real event every night and you don't get that every night. And that's kind of strange. It's
1: a bizarre feeling. So
2: mm-hmm. Come back, back down. You'll, you'll get that all the time, I suppose. Just one night at Wembley and then next night... Shawlins. Shawlins, yeah. <laughs> 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 so tomorrow. Shawlins. mm mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, sometimes, like, when you come back for to tour, I'll be like, st- I'll be making a dinner, and then it's like, why why is nobody applauding or cheering this? Yeah. Where's my positive reinforcement? <laughs> it's a why great no- ramen that you made. Why is <laughs> no one giving me a
2: drink? Uh huh. I know. Buying your own beer. I mean, this fridge it's just doesn't replenish, with uh-huh. Yeah. beer. Weird things that you just get used to.
1: Yeah. It I is.
2: think we we're, we're, were used to, like, uh, scrapping over a,
0: a an eight-can pack of tenants, but... Or <laughs> it's diff- it it's
1: was like, six weeks in Germany that I did where I could not tell you... Where I was in Germany, or what day of the week it was, at any point I had no idea. And by that, that point, beer? I'd stopped. I mean, you laugh because you know I'm terrible responding to anybody. So felt like, like, like I really didn't know where yeah. I was or what day. The only I was way doing. you
0: could be like less responsive is if you were unconscious.
1: Dead, yeah. <laughs> 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 yes, <laughs> yeah. I'm terrible. <laughs> yeah.
2: But that, that's another thing that's just that's going. We're going to have to get used to is that the last time we were on tour. There was nothing like the available ways of communicating mm-hmm. that, that we have now. I mean, obviously mobile phones were there, but you couldn't get email on mobile phones at the time. Mm-hmm. kind of like a real granddad moment here. Yeah. <laughs> but like, yeah, you didn't have like the ability to do video calls, share things, you could text somebody. But even then, it was like roaming, data roaming in, in America and things like that. This wasn't really happening. So I couldn't text home. Mm-hmm. Unless I had a laptop and I and I hooked up to the you know the internet and, and we sent an email home, that'd be the way to do it. And now it's like the world has completely changed. It's all photographs and yeah, social media content and that kind of nonsense, which we're having to. I mean, we've, you know, it's not as if we've been you know taken out of that for the last fifteen years because we're both involved in the music industry. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say both, I mean me and Emma we both have responsibilities on for social media on various things, Chemical Underground or Chem19 or our own personal ones so it's not as if it's like here, this is Twitter, you know I've been on it for 10 years (laughs) (laughs) but I've never had to engage with it as a band so we're kind of now having to Think about all that stuff like banned Facebook, banned Instagram, banned Twitter. It's mm-hmm. a
1: full-time job.
2: It is. It is. It's, it's, it's honking.
1: You. It's yeah, you I know you need to endure that all the time. Mm-hmm.
2: Despite like, despite only
0: being twenty-nine uh, years old, I still, re- <laughs> I still remember. <laughs> I still remember like when you would just you would check your email maybe once a day, and that was fine, and everything was fine, the world didn't end, and now yeah. it's kind of like, people are like. <laughs>
1: Word
0: sent in this email 37 minutes ago and uh, I've not heard anything back yeah. yet. Best. <laughs> best. Yeah. Gets Many. more and more passive aggressive. Many thanks. Oh. From the kind has gone from the regards. <laughs> um, I'm looking forward a lot to the
2: Delgado's uh, TikTok. Oh yeah, so sure am I. Hmm. I'm gonna be dancing. <laughs> you have to dance on TikToks. I think so. Yeah, it's yeah, a big? Yeah
1: of it, certainly. Yeah.
0: Otherwise <laughs> so, you're just kind of staring dead-eyed into the camera, if you don't know. I could, do <laughs> <Definitely>. I could <laughs> do that. Definitely, I do that, thing.
1: Or we should do like a <laughs> Paul Savage every hour on the hour TikTok.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just just do like cross-fading stuff and stuff. Oh, yeah. You film filming? Yeah.
2: <laughs> I'll just do the same face and you've got to guess if it's aggressive or if it's me being scared or, you know, because it's the same look the way for me, <laughs> <laughs> just gives this kind of terrified, wide-eyed thing.
0: <laughs> yeah. Also, I think Look we've. V- to. I think we said Emma's name like maybe twenty times, but not actually. It's Emma Pollock. Yes. Um, we so we as- Yeah, we're assuming. I'll just uh do a wee a voice voiceover earlier on the first time we see Emma. Small wiki-, wiki entry. Yeah. <laughs> just for clarification. Yeah. yeah th- one of the major things you know, is the is the social media onslaught these days. But I guess the other huge thing since the Delgados has last been out about is the shift from people buying music to people just streaming it. And yeah. so, you know, you obviously haven't been, again, it's not you coming back going, guess what? Nobody buys <laughs> anywhere near as see CDs or records anymore. CDs, yeah. But... But how have you experienced the, the the shift to streaming? You know, working with artists, I guess mainly, um, in in the
2: studio and like just generally as being involved in chemical as well. I think it's been, on a whole, a terrible thing for for music. I mean, it's like a, it's, it's so well documented. There's so many people talking about it and legally trying to battle with labels and uh, and maybe the labels that own Spotify, for instance. You know, they're Dragging their heels, they're not like kind of like yeah, let's let's change this um, situation where artists get nothing and the shareholders, i.e. them, get a massive amount of money. Mm-hmm. Um, the argument that Spotify is has been making a loss is is a very cute one. It's very very clever. They have marketed themselves enormously over the last 10-15 years they've they've pulled themselves into a position where they are almost indispensable with people's in people's lives mm-hmm. they've cornered the market in a, in a lot of ways and um, yeah so the books might look like well we're, we're making a loss mm-hmm. but you're pushing yourself and you're establishing yourself total Trojan horse style like let's just get in to everyone's uh, lives, and then we won't we will be indispensable. And I think that the whole sharing, the the idea that they do, they don't make money is is kind of nonsense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, there's a lot about it. There's there's so much I don't really know exactly the ins and outs of a lot of it. But I just it's it's a lot of money involved in it, and the artists aren't getting enough. If the artists don't get enough places like M19 can't survive bands can't survive mm-hmm. you'll see a lot more people doing solo stuff because it makes sense it's financially it's the only way you can do it, you can't pay like a five piece band and expect them to quit their jobs the way the maybe things were for us when we started mm-hmm. we got a small publishing deal the four of us quit, we didn't, well we didn't have jobs at the time but we, we didn't have to go and get jobs and that was the case with most musicians that were kind of doing something, releasing records. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, that's very different. Most people I know are musicians that can survive as just being a musician. That's amazing. That's real. That's a real achievement. A lot of people that are in bands that you might expect to be making a decent living from the band are working two or three part-time jobs as mm-hmm. well as a band. That's so, yeah.
0: That's one of the reasons that we wanted to do this podcast. It's to kind of not have a moan about things, but I'll just try to kind of like start a healthier conversation with um, between musicians who are working today, and also maybe people who are listening to this that aren't musicians. Um, that there's a real toxic kind of trait amongst musicians, all of us, that we have to present this things are going amazing all the time, kind of front. Yeah. And you have to allude, like, try and give the impression that this is the only thing that I do. This is, this is my job. And it's like, it's yeah. one of my jobs, but it's not
2: my only yeah. job. And mm-hmm. there's
0: very few people who have just got that one job these days uh, who are also musicians. And um, I think that we would all feel a lot kind of freer and more relaxed if we were all just able to be more open about that.
1: I yeah, think. even from this. I mean, I can't tell you in the past. Even the past week, the amount of people that come up to me that I've maybe not seen socially in the past while because I've uh, been away or I've been gigging or whatnot, and they're just like, "God, you look like you are so busy." Like I've not yeah. contacted you because you look like you're so busy. And I was like, "Well, I don't post on social media mm. anymore. I hate social media. So why do you think I'm busy?" it's just it's like it's, it's an assumption because yeah. you may play with one artist who's doing well it just stop like people stop mm-hmm. quite like and it is it's grim I've got nothing for months do you know but but you have to put up this thing if you're posting on social media it's like this yeah. is amazing here's the front yeah uh-huh it's completely false
0: Well, it's, it's the way that Instagram and things like that are set up though like positive things are encouraged like, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're like, everything's great look at all these people and then those things will reach more people because of an algorithm, whereas Twitter's set up to you know, you need to be um, it's set up to cause fights like, Twitter is, it's like an aggro machine so like, you've got Instagram that's trying to go like, try and look as popular and happy as possible and uh, Twitter's like Look at these tweets that will drive you up the fucking wall.
1: Um, yeah, we'll, yeah, will provoke. I also, I don't know if this is true. I read this thing about Spotify that if you know, say, one of your tracks was popped in like a Spotify indie whatever playlist, hmm. if people skip it, it will. Some algorithm will kick you like out of this and therefore your music's more difficult to find, it becomes more Caught co- yeah. like
2: That's if you're skipped. True. That's within. probably true.
0: Yeah. So th- there's the, there's a real chance that um, some, well, quite a few of the people listen to this will be listening to it on Spotify and um, it's difficult these days because it is the platform through which people access music so you kind of be like, there will be some people going like, oh, surely you should just take your music off Spotify if you hear it so much. But
1: Yeah, but it's like, is it a necessary evil? Is it it just, yeah, it's just it's impossible
0: it's to be a see, musician mm-hmm. without having it's your music it's it. on Spotify mm-hmm. or yeah. possible to have like a, you know, to do this without having Spotify as well. And uh, I, I got a, an email literally this morning <laughs> from Spotify going, we've got a little survey to see uh, what you think of the service. And it's like, is what do they expect? Yous are robbing bastards. Yeah. You're at it. You are your CEO. Is now investing in um like literally in weapons manufacturers and arms deal like um arms companies with his the amount of money that he's made off Spotify and it's just becoming like almost like a parody of an evil corporation because the guy's literally investing in weapons tech with the money he's made from exploiting musicians. I oh, use Tidal. <laughs> this is available in <laughs> Tidal as well, I think. Yeah. So um yeah, it's like I feel like it sounds better in title anyway. Oh, yeah, uh-huh. and it pays better as well. It's uh, slightly, slightly more Who's of a fraction of a penny. Again, I think it was was it Jay Z? It was, yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe, yeah. And also that guy with the paper mache head that isn't Frank Sidebot.
1: Dead mouse. That's the one. Yeah. Um, He's a lovely guy. All <laughs> oh, right. Oh, nice.
0: Uh, I'll, g- have wee, uh, I'll have a wee. will si- have a wee sound effect for that name drop.
1: Mm. <coughs> yeah, sub drops.
2: Uh, yeah. So sorry.
0: Sorry, went to a bit of a rant about Spotify there again.
2: Um, but we're, we're finding another thing to to be completely fair about it and transparent. As a label that had stuff that was out in the nineties and got across to a lot of people, like Mogwai and you know bands like that. We are finding that because we've got such a large catalogue, we've been mm-hmm. going for 25 years already. It's more, 27 years. Mm-hmm. So 27 years of, of releases, and they're all, most of them at least, are up on Spotify. Mm-hmm. A lot of these people who are fans of Mogwai, who still want to listen to Mogwai, bought CDs and vinyl back in the 90s, 1997, for instance, for Young Team. mm mm-hmm. But guess what they do nowadays? If they want to listen to that Mogwai record, they don't go and get the CD out and put it in a CD player that they don't have, mm-hmm. or, a, or a turntable that they don't use anymore. It's on the phone. It's on the in their car. So they're, they're in some ways we're benefiting as a label from the investment that we did years ago, and Spotify's enabling us. Our streaming services are enabling us to. Almost get paid again, so that's a, and obviously we, we that goes to the band as well. That everything gets split, but that's one positive side effect of the industry. That if you have enough catalog like we do, we're kind of lucky to scrape. We're, we're scraping by. We're we're only in existence for two things, at the moment. Um, to be blunt, it's probably Mogwai. And it's probably uh, a general drip of of that old of that the whole catalog mm-hmm. tiny tiny bits of in cash that comes in from two to three hundred different catalog numbers mm-hmm. and we're just about scraping by a wage for someone yeah. to to do that without us going under um that's not a great state of affairs. I mean we've got a lot of amazing records and over the years and there's a lot of investment but Mm. it's just enabling us to not manufacture so the plus side is we don't have to manufacture this and the money just comes in Mm -hmm. and it is sometimes you'll find that a lot of the people that are using it they've already bought the record
0: Yeah, I mean that feels like damning with Faint Fraser so you've got a gigantic back catalogue and you're scraping by because of the ridiculously unfair compensation that Spotify provide for them having that catalog yeah. and them generating ad revenue off the back of it,
2: and so well, that's why everyone's buying catalog. You hear about you know Bob Dylan sold this catalog, yeah. mm-hmm. and everyone everyone's doing it. And people have approached us recently saying, "Could we buy your catalog?" And I'm thinking, mm, why why do you want the catalog? Mm-hmm. And it's exactly because what we are seeing in a very modest way because we're a small label is. This is just a gift that keeps on giving, and if people could market it more, if people could buy our catalogue and then push it to more people and get more on more playlists and Spotify, then they would find it. All oh right, that's worth it. Everyone's buying up catalogue. It's it's a huge thing. One single album or one single song is not going to be enough. It's quantity. Mm-hmm. It's what they're, they're they're looking for, and there's a reason for it. So. so
0: with and uh, I think Bruce Springsteen was another one that's just sold his entire catalogue. Yeah. I'm assuming that's partially because that allows licensing to other media in, in perpetuity, right? So that's the dying twitches of the music industry or these hedge funds buying up a catalogue and then going, Well, we'll just license this to streaming services, programmes, uh, whatever anything yeah. you want, they can without the artistic interference of going, please do not use my um you know my song for a, a BA systems
2: advert. <laughs> <laughs> like it might be that, yeah. It might there might be back deals about anything that gets used gets fifty fifty or or maybe they still some people still have the right to veto it. Yeah. Who knows? But
0: I'm just waiting for a like a an ad a recruitment advert for like the US Air Force that's not listened to the lyrics of Born in the USA and try and use it for an ad campaign. Yeah. I'm sure that
1: would
0: be I'm like trying to strike a balance between moaning about streaming, because it's like that's not going to engender any sort of like sympathy from people here. Um, but I don't think
2: enough people understand the very uh,
0: the harsh realities
2: of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, one CD sale is going to obliterate most people's Spotify income for a week or yeah. a couple of weeks or a month, depending on the size of the artist, but... Mm-hmm. That, that £6 you might get all things considered, manufacturing and, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's a lot of streams, you know.
0: Uh, and like I d- I'm I'm not surprised. People aren't aware of um, how badly streaming payments uh, compensate artists because it's very boring. Yeah. It's not, it's not exciting.
1: I feel like, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of off on a tangent, but I feel like merch sales recently have gone way up. Yeah. Or I'm kind of seeing, the kind of flips. I mean, I know, like, getting your hand in vinyl vinyls just like crazy at the moment. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, don't know if I'm even working some merch, you know, gigs for for promoters and stuff. It's I don't know. It just yeah. feels like way more than it was pre-COVID, maybe, or maybe.
2: I think people are buying things to help. I think if mm-hmm. some people do understand that uh, artists are struggling, and the only way to do that, I mean, if you. If you buy a t-shirt at £15 pounds or, t- you know, whatever. Billie Eilish jumper,
1: straight. 90 quid. What? £90 what? Pounds for a Billie Eilish jumper.
2: Has she worn it?
1: <laughs> Honestly, like, yeah, g- g- genuinely. Well.
0: well £200 well.
1: Pounds at Alanis Morissette for a signed harmonica on a case. <laughs>
2: That's crazy. <laughs> and I can unique.
1: confirm that two uh, of my friends bought them. A Morissette Muthie. A Morissette Muthie.
2: That's amazing. We're wow. going to have to up our merch game because we c- we've Mithy. just got a pro Delgado t shirt and that's it.
1: T shirts are going like 30 quid for a t shirt minimum. Now.
2: 30 pounds. Mm. No, it that's, that's ridiculous. We, yeah, can't, that's we can't do wild. that. Wild. But I mean, I've heard a lot of venues now, this is another thing we should talk about. Massive like
1: cuts. That the cuts, yeah, 20%. Uh-huh. Unbelievable. And they're
2: not providing a staff. They're not providing the staff. Yeah. I think I could understand if they if they were the ones that sold it and you've got mm-hmm. somebody. So we were even talking about that. Like, do we, b- I mean, on our mythical tour bus, do we have enough room for, given that there's so many in the band, mm-hmm. do we have enough room for a, a merch person or do we get somebody in the King. venue to do it? And how much do they take? And do they take a cut? And there's a lot of stuff, like the little kicks were on about it um, this week on Twitter mm-hmm. with Tim Burgess sort of backing them up, just saying it's ridiculous that. Bands have to pay twenty percent of their merch to somebody who basically is doing nothing, or a venue that's doing nothing.
0: The only justification for any cut of merch being taken is if the venue provide a merch person, yeah. and even then you should be able to say no, we don't need that. Yeah. But like, yes, yeah, it, again, it's just absolute robbery. Like twenty percent for literally
2: nothing. Well, in these big places, it will be, it will be policy, and it will be. I can imagine that we'll really struggle to get round that? I think it
0: was uh, I don't know if it was Shepherds Bush, it might have been Shepherds Bush Empire and um, the OCs were playing there and they spoke to the pub next door and said look can we set up our merch in here for after the gig, you know you'll get a queue of people coming in and they'll probably buy some drinks as well, so like during the gig they're like we don't have any merch and stay on this venue because
2: they took they're
0: taking 20% so come for a drink next door after the gig uh, and the merch is up in there you can get your t-shirts and records or whatever. That's a good show. That is. Yeah, um, that. I was away on, on tour once and uh, with uh, with Kenny uh, King Criswell and we were playing in his band and also opening for him uh, and his Kid Canaveral. And um, I think one of the venues tried that with us, and yeah. uh, we were just like no, and like Kenny was like no as well. So like there's a the complete unanimity of like we'll sell it in the car park. Yeah. So either get that charge removed or we'll just sell it outside in the car park and there's a lot of people in here who will not take kindly to your venue, trash afters like this and they relented. What's the big achievement that you put on your CV and what's your personal proudest achievement? Like, Do they differ?
2: It depends on the context. I think it's like if you you were to get across, as we all know, which I think it links back to the name of this podcast Mm. in the the amount of family members that I don't see mm-hmm. until there's a funeral that will say, Are you still doing the music? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's it's the only thing that they can grasp onto that I've ever done is Jules Holland. <laughs> right. So <laughs> it's not my proudest moment. It's not like I don't I don't I didn't enjoy it. It was great. It was fine. Um but as a hook into normal sort of like you know, conversation for, for family members that don't really listen to the music that I make. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, my nephew was in Jules Holland. Like, right, okay, that's great, they can say that, and that's that's that would be the one hook that, that gets everyone in. As far as I'm concerned, it wouldn't be that. I suppose I'm probably, there's no one thing. I'm proud of what we've done. I'm proud of mm-hmm. the band. I'm, I mean, this is weird talking about the band as... Is alive now, which I've not been doing for seventeen years. Mm-hmm. I was always proud of what we achieved and the label achieved, and what Emma achieves. And but it's all and then any you know records that I'm 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 working on. It's all been a very very long, slow. Hopefully, a, a series of 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 good moves and 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 good music and, mm-hmm. you know, that's. I think the legacy is more important than one thing. I don't think I could say that, but if I had to be pushed, I would say the Broken Channel record, of course. <laughs> thank <because you> <laughs> I so. think. Have you knew heard it yet, anybody? Yeah. <laughs> Go and check it out. It's available on Spotify. <laughs>
0: hey. Hi. Um, well, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah. That was a, a real you. pleasure. It um, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's that's, that's a long one as well. It was really good. Yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed it. Um, so yeah, thank you very much, Paul. Thanks for having me. Cheers. This podcast was recorded for GLAD Radio at the deep end in Glasgow, Scotland, under the watchful eye and guidance of Richard, the Raging Bull, and edited by me, David McGregor. Today's episode was written by me with additional material by Charlotte Printer. All music composed by me and R. This episode was sponsored by your couch, as it would like you to know that it has become self-aware and is starting to have concerns about your lifestyle choices.